Jonathan Gross will come and preach on the verses that Nigel reads to us. Thanks. Good morning. Our first reading is from Leviticus and chapter 23. We turn to Leviticus 23 and we'll be reading verses 26 through to 28. I'm reading from the NIV. The Lord said to Moses, the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day because it is the day of atonement, when atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. And then if you turn back a, a few chapters to Leviticus chapter 16, and we'll read verses 1 to 10. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with the linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And then down to verse 29. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you on the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. Amen. As we come to God's word, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for these, these very ancient texts that can sometimes seem quite obscure to us and yet, as we will see today, can, can hold powerful pictures of, of the salvation that we have in Jesus. Lord, we pray you will speak to each one of us wherever, wherever we are in our life journey, in our spiritual journey, in our relationship with you. If we're sitting too comfortably, we pray you'll challenge us. 
if in life we're feeling challenged, you'll comfort us through this. And Lord, change our lives that we may serve you better with with holiness and righteousness and love for one another. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I I said earlier, it's it's lovely to be back preaching face-to-face with a group of people, uh, but also to be preaching to those of you who are viewing this online. Leviticus chapter 23 lists the, the seven feasts that ancient Israel were instructed to celebrate after they'd entered the promised land. The first four of them were, were spring feasts, so they celebrated those in March, April, May time now. Passover and unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. We looked at those together in a mini-series back in 2019, in the summer of 2019. Uh, and I did have a quick look, and, and those are still on the website if you wanted to go back and, and, and uh, catch those again. But the remaining three feasts were autumn feasts. So I'll just move this on. It seems not to be responding. There we go. Oh, too much now. There we go. So the first ones are spring feasts. The remaining ones are autumn feasts, three more. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And today we're going to look at the Day of Atonement, uh, the middle one of those autumn feasts. It seemed appropriate to look at this since we're only two weeks after Easter, and there's so much depth in here that relates to what happened to Jesus on the cross. The Day of Atonement was the most solemn day in the calendar of ancient Israel. It's mentioned briefly in that list of of all seven feasts in Leviticus 23. But then, because it's so important, they dedicate a whole chapter of Leviticus to it, Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, So if you could have your Bibles or your Bible apps open on Leviticus chapter 16, that would be great as we unpack some of the details in there and look at how they relate to us today. Why are these ancient feasts of ancient Israel of relevance to us in in New Testament times, post-New Testament times, believers in Christ. Well, if you look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, when Paul's writing to a young church there, and he's been talking about feasts and festivals that, that, as Jewish people, they were celebrating at that time, and he said the feasts that were celebrated and had been all through Old Testament times, these are a shadow of the things which are to come. But the reality is to be found in Jesus Christ. And we saw this very strongly when we looked at the meaning of Passover, the meaning of uh, first fruits, the meaning of Pentecost. And we'll see it now as we look at the Day of Atonement. 
So as we come to think about the Day of Atonement now, we must start with, first of all, that there is an insoluble problem. And we see that in the first two verses of, uh, of Leviticus, uh, chapter 19. You see, if we're seeking a relationship with God, there is a big barrier. The problem is, God is holy. God is unimaginably, awesomely holy. It's a key teaching theme throughout Leviticus. Indeed, it's a key teaching theme throughout the Old Testament. At the beginning of the service, Jonathan read verses. Uh, Isaiah had that experience of the holiness of God. At the beginning of Leviticus chapter 19, we read, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. God calls us to be holy like him. And this means, this holiness, this this awesome holiness of God means we have to be very cautious in the way we approach him. They did in those days. We do now. The book of Exodus describes how God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. It was a momentous journey of salvation that the ancient people of Israel undertook. The dramatic exodus from Egypt, celebrated in the Feast of Passover. The giving of the law at Mount Sinai, celebrated in the Feast of Pentecost. The voice of God speaking to them in the desert, which is celebrated in the Feast of Trumpets, another of the autumn festivals they held. The book of Exodus then ends with God coming to live with his people That was really exciting for them. God gave them detailed instructions on how to construct a special tent. It was called the tabernacle. Every detail was laid out for them. It was to be the place where God would dwell with them, his people. Here was God's tent erected in the middle of the camp. You've got God's tent in the middle surrounded by all of their tents all around. Of course, we know from the whole Bible story, God can never be constrained to live in just one place. Even the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, the place called the most holy place, he couldn't be constrained to live there. It was a symbolic place that he was living And here we have a symbol revealing God's heart. God's heart was always to be with his people, right in the middle of his people in their daily lives. God had brought his people out of Egypt so he could take up residence with them. But then we get to the last chapter of Exodus, how the book is ending. And this holiness of God presents them with a seemingly insoluble problem. 
How can God live with them, amongst them, when they are so unholy and he is so holy? We can lose this sense of the holiness of God ourselves, and it's good to reflect back into that, which this passage is leading us to do. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35 says, Then the cloud covering the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Ancient Israel had a massive problem. How could unholy, sinful people visit this glorious God in his home? God was present, but he wasn't accessible. God was living next door to them, but because of their sins, they couldn't meet with him. People nowadays don't much like to talk about sin or the consequences of sin. What is sin? It takes several forms. It's uncleanness, behavior that pollutes the world, physically pollutes it and emotionally and spiritually pollutes it. All that needs to be cleansed. Sin is rebellion, deliberately going against God's instructions on how we are supposed to live. And sin is wickedness, hurting other people, whether it's done intentionally or, or accidentally. It's wrong, it's sin, and it should be called out as sin. Sin is just as much a problem for everybody in this world today. And not only out in the world, but, but yes, inside the church as well. Let's not pretend. God's people were sinful then, and they are sinful now. Sin is like a virus, to pick up on a, a theme we're all rather too aware of. It is seriously contagious. And you can't just stop sinning by wearing a mask. And sin is also highly lethal. It kills us. And we are powerless to cure it ourselves. We can't just vaccinate ourselves in a simple way against it by trying harder. The only person that could fix this problem of sin for ancient Israel, for them and indeed for us, is God himself. I'm sure most of us have, have experienced those problems of being stuck on the phone in a phone queue. <sighs> Trying to get something sorted out with a shop or, or dare I say a bank or an airline. Your call is important to us. Please hold on until someone is available. <laughs> then eventually you do get through. And then the person you deal with doesn't have the authority to sort out the problem. You can talk to call center staff, but 
but they won't put you through to the manager, the one with the authority to deal with the problem. And if that boss, that manager, is quite content to remain unavailable, inaccessible, you can be pretty stuck and you can waste an awful lot of time and get nowhere. Well, that may be our experience with call centres, but thankfully for all of us, that was not the case with God. God is not an uncaring, distant boss. Although he is holy, unbelievably holy, he is almighty, he loves to act towards us with the heart of a servant. In Leviticus, he revealed to Moses the way that people could draw near to him. Sinful people could draw near. He said that was by bringing a sacrificial offering for their sins. Ancient Israel had to draw near on God's terms by bringing the sacrifices that he prescribed would be sufficient to cleanse their sin. Yet the animals that were the sacrifices described in Leviticus in great length, they were imperfect. And the people that were making the sacrifices, the priests, they were themselves imperfect as well. It meant the Old Testament sacrifices needed repeating again and again and again. The solution was only temporary. At the beginning of John's Gospel, John, in his prologue, says, he, that's Jesus, he, that's God, became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Literally, he means he came and tabernacled amongst us. It's an illusion pointing back to the Old Testament tabernacle, the way God lived in that tent among his people. He's saying Jesus came and tabernacled amongst us. God the Son came and lived amongst us, just like God the Father did in the Old Testament tabernacle. And in doing so, he provided us with a permanent solution to this problem of sin. God doesn't change. He's still unimaginably holy today. Sometimes we can perhaps be too familiar with him and forget that holiness. But when Jesus came, he provided that one full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice for sin. It's something we celebrate in the communion service. And without Jesus, sin would still be that insurmountable barrier for us today. We'd still have to be relying on these temporary, imperfect, sacrificial solutions. So when we come to the description of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, verses 1 and 2 set out the context and the need for a day of atonement for ancient Israel. We read it in the first two verses. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. 
The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place. Behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, the place where God symbolically dwelt, or else he will die. Sin is lethal. For I will appear in a cloud over the atonement cover. That's where the, the, the cover where over the Ark of the Covenant, holding the Ten Commandments and God's symbolic presence. The people could not just go into the throne room of God whenever they liked, however they liked. No, not even Aaron, the brother of Moses. Back in Leviticus 10, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, had tried to do just that, approaching God on their terms and the holiness of God consume them by fire. The gulf between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man was absolute, and it still is. God says, approach with caution. It's the same for us today. If we seek to come to God on our own terms, thinking we are good and righteous enough, or thinking if we just turn up at church for a little bit, that will make us fine. We will not be saved. Like ancient Israel, we must rely upon the solution that God provides to bridge the chasm. And that's what we call this word atonement. It's a word made up from three English words. It's not actually a Bible word as such. At one month. It's the process of bringing God and his people back together as one. So God explains in Leviticus 16 for ancient Israel what is his divine solution that the people must follow. And we have so many allusions to Jesus in this, and that's why we look at this still. So in verses 3 to 10, which we read, we get a summary of the requirements placed upon Israel if atonement, at one between God and man is to happen. Verses 11 to 28, which you're welcome to read at your leisure after, that explains all the procedures in much more detail. So what do we see that atonement needs? Well, there's two things. The first is it needs a mediating high priest. We read that in verses 3 to 4 and verse 6. The Day of Atonement was the big day. Indeed, even in Israel, it still is a big festival day for Jewish people today. It was like the Sabbath of all Sabbaths. Absolutely no one was to do any work. No one, that is, except the high priest for that year. And only he could do his work in a prescribed way, because like the rest of us, he's a sinner. So he had to undergo extensive whole body washing to cleanse himself. The text describes that before he can deal with the sin of other people. He has to make a sacrifice of a bull and a ram for his own sins and for the sins of his family. 
he has to wear a simple white linen robe. None of those glorious, beautiful robes that he normally wears described in Exodus. On this one day, he wears a simple white robe. You see, on this day, the high priest comes as a servant of his people. He has to burn incense. The tabernacle must be filled with smoke so that he cannot see this symbolic presence of God or he would die. As the high priest enters the most holy place, he is alone, verse 17. On that day, the people did nothing and the high priest did everything. It's high drama. The whole nation of Israel is gathered, watching as one simply dressed individual enters the throne room of God in the tabernacle. Will he come out alive, they wonder. They even tied a cord onto his ankle so that they could pull his body out if he was overcome by the presence of God. Then after he had presented himself to God, he was able to continue to make atonement for all the people of Israel. I wonder, does that narrative remind you of anyone? The Lord Jesus in Gethsemane in John 17, he wrestled in prayer, first for himself, then for his disciples, before finally he prayed for all those who would in future become his people, you and me. In the garden, Jesus declared in John 17, verse 19, for their sake, I consecrate myself, set myself aside, purify it, that I may, that they may truly be sanctified. Then he went to the cross, alone, as a priestly servant of his people, dressed only in simple clothes. It's like the high priest taking off those, those colourful, normal, ceremonial robes that he used. When Jesus came down to earth, he left behind all the heavenly glory. He clothed himself in simple humanity and humility. Philippians 2 says, Jesus humbled himself, taking on the nature of a servant, and became obedient, followed God's methods of atonement to death, even death on a cross. The high priest in Leviticus 16 was a sinner who had to offer sacrifices for himself. His intercessions for the people was temporary, and eventually he died and was replaced by another high priest. Yet Jesus was different. Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus is our perfect and eternal great high priest, without any sin, and permanently interceding for us with the Father. The book of Hebrews is absolutely filled with allusions 
to this Day of Atonement ceremony. Hebrews 7, 25 to 27 says, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Hallelujah. It's amazing to think that Jesus is there in heaven now, interceding with this awesomely holy God for you and for me. It's nothing we've done that brings us close to God. It's the sheer grace and mercy we receive because of Christ. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 and 5 says, when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he, that's Jesus, saved us, not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of mercy. A mediating high priest. But what else does atonement need? It needs a mediating high priest, but then it needs an atoning offering. And that's in verses 5 and 7 to 10. So the high priest has done all that's required of him to do for himself and his family. What happens next in this drama that's played out before all the people of Israel? The next verses describe what the high priest did to make atonement for God's people. Two identical male goats were selected from the herds of the Israelite community, verse 5. Both of them had to be flawless. Why? Well, they were for God who was flawless. In fact, you read in, in Malachi that, that often they were choosing animals that were imperfect because they wanted to keep the good ones for themselves. But no, they had to be perfect. Now, note it was two animals, but together they formed one atoning offering. It wasn't two separate offerings. It's two animals making up one offering. In the sight of the whole community, the high priest presented them before the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle, verse 7. The high priest cast lots to determine what happens to each one, which one is which, verse 8. One is to be sacrificed, the other is to be released into the desert. So what's going on here? Well, the first goat... The goat that was selected to sac for sacrifice is slain in front of the people. Verse 9. The high priest takes its blood into a bowl and he enters the tabernacle with this offering. He goes behind the great curtain that separates the most holy place from the rest. That's verse 15. And then he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat, the atonement cover. The gold lid placed over the Ark of the Covenant holding the commandments. It had two gold cherubim either side, wings spread over it. It delineated the space in which God's presence dwelt. The first goat symbolically died in the sinner's place. 
an innocent life given in exchange for guilty lives. Instead of the death of God's people because of their sin, God appointed the death of a substitute, the first goat. This is a a graphic picture, a powerful Old Testament shadow of the New Testament reality that was still to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. The sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross was our substitute to put those who have faith in him back into a right relationship with God. As the hymn says, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Alleluia, what a saviour. Guilty, vile and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he, Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a saviour. Captures that perfectly. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, to be a sin offering for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Hebrews again says, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. At that very moment when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple, the temple being the successor to the tabernacle, the curtain that hides the most holy place from the eyes of the high priest and all the people, it was torn in two from top to bottom. God announces that Jesus, the one and only great high priest, has made the one effective offering for all time, and we have access to God available to us once again. Hebrews 10, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. So what does it mean for us? Two things. First, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you can be assured that God loves you. That God has accepted you. You can know peace. You can have spiritual security, not uncertainty. You can have freedom from the fear of death. And secondly, you can be confident that you do have full and free access to God once again. That impossible situation has been solved by God. Your prayers are not just hitting the ceiling. The way is open. But only if you seek God through Jesus. As Paul writes in Romans 3, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. So that's the first goat. What about the second goat? Because two goats made up the one offering. The second goat that was still alive. There we go. Well, this was known as the scapegoat. 
And it's unique to the Day of Atonement. And it's a second aspect of atonement. And we can often forget that and think about Jesus' death on the cross, the sacrificial substitute, and forget that there's another aspect. In verse 10 and verses 21 to 22, we read that the high priest placed his hands on the head of the goat. He confessed all the sins of Israel, the wickedness, the rebellion of God's people, and then symbolically he placed the sin on the head of the goat. And then, with the help of a series of men along the pathways designated for the task, the ghost was led away, forced away, out into the desert and abandoned, far away from any people. Verse 22 explains the rationale for this Old Testament ceremonial. It says, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. What about Jesus? Here we have another Old Testament shadow of the New Testament reality in Jesus that he fulfilled. As he hung on the cross, Jesus took our sins on his head. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus quotes Psalm 22, David's words. You see, for us too, we can know not just that there's been an exchange, our sins have been removed, but that they've been taken away forever. When we fail, when we pray, Lord, I've done it again, what joy it is to know him replying, you've done what again? They've been taken away, abandoned and forgotten. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So, in summary, the Day of Atonement, two goats make up one atonement offering. The first goat dies in the place of God's people a substitutionary sacrifice. The second goat is publicly driven away with sin on its head, never to return. And when we look at the New Testament, we so clearly see Jesus fulfilling both of those tasks. On the Old Testament Day of Atonement, no one worked except the high priest. Today, the only way to receive salvation is to accept that work already done by Jesus and not work we need to do ourselves to make ourselves good with God. Jesus is our great high priest, the eternal one. He's offered that perfect atoning sacrifice for himself. There's no work left for us to do for salvation. We must rest in what Jesus has done and rejoice. God is holy, but that's how much he loves us despite being holy, despite being so different from us. His love has reached out and bridged that chasm through Jesus for all of us, for all time, once and for all. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, we, we know we all have a choice to make. We can ignore you. We can reach out to you in our own strength and in our own individual ways. Or we can recognise we have to believe, trust, reach out and accept your perfect and only way of atonement. Jesus has done it all. He has paid the penalty and he's removed our sins far away so that the way is open again. Lord, wherever each of us are sitting before you, we pray that we will understand the need to come to you in faith, to trust with our whole hearts. And whether we're at home online or or here in the room, we pray, Lord, that you will speak to each one of us, move us forward in our relationship with you. May the path be open. May we be at one with you, but only through Christ. And thank you for him and all all he was and all that he has done. In Jesus' name. Amen.